Welcome those of you listening online. Welcome Chicago cohort to our chapel. Good to see you all here. Isn't God good? Thank you, uh, Vinny and Des, for that beautiful song. Wow, that was powerful. Well, today we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 7. How many have heard uh, have ever heard a preacher or some other Christian quote Romans chapter 7 where it says, you know, the things I don't want to do is that which I do, and what a wretch I am. And they, and they seem to describe it as being normative of the Christian life. Okay, so that is a misinterpretation of the passage. And I believe we're going to get the record straight from our pastor, yes, you visionary are. leader, Joe Wright Rostin. Amen, amen. Let's give it up for Pastor Jared as well. Amen. We're going to get the record straight by God's grace. No one's better than another. It's just the truth is the truth. So it's good to have the truth. It's never good to believe a lie. You don't want to believe a lie, no matter how good it makes you feel. But this truth makes you feel good. Amen. Not all truth will make you feel good, and that's okay. Sometimes the truth hurts, but the truth can transform your life. Let's look to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Now remember, we got to be a little bit of mathematicians when we do verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter analysis of a scripture. Let me see how good of mathematicians you guys are. Does chapter 7 come before chapter 5 and 6, Jackie, or does chapter 7 come after chapters 5 and 6? After. Okay, so you got to be mathematicians a little bit when you study verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter. Now, you've also got to be logicians. you got to be logical. Would Paul write something in chapter 7 that contradicts what he wrote in previous chapters 1 through 6? No. That's why I say all good debates, all good discussions should be limited to the books themselves with only the scriptures they mention from the prophets. So, for example, Romans, if you really want to discuss Romans, and the Calvinist wants to take you to Romans 8 at the chain of redemption or to Romans 9, then what you do is you simply say, let's only discuss the book of Romans, no other writings of Paul, let's stay only here, and then the only scriptures we can go to is the one that Paul, the ones that Paul brings up. Simple enough, right? Because then you can destroy Calvinism easily, and we've already done it, and we're not even at 8 or 9. But I've jumped there a few different times. You can also do that with various cults, like legalistic cults. Whatever you think Paul is going to say about the law, it is not going to contradict the things he said in Romans chapter 3, and that the law only really shows us our sin but cannot save, and that there is now a new law, the law of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. You're not going to be able to get away from that as well as people like we learned about last week, universalists, who kind of want to do the judge not thing, just take that phrase, judge not lest you be judged, and erase all of the other context. They want to look at the scriptures in Romans where it says, if he died, if we were all made sinners in Adam, and then Christ died to make us all righteous, then how is anyone going to be condemned? You know, So universal salvation is for all, just like there was universal condemnation. What do you do? You walk them through the book of Romans, and you show them that Paul is not not contradicting himself. He makes very broad statements, but he qualifies them. He qualifies them. And just for that example of universalism one, here's a very broad statement. All of you are always welcome at my house. 
You can take that, and you can consider that now to be an invitation. You could try to stretch that to come over to play video games at 3 in the morning tonight, but you would be wrong. Because in another statement, I'm going to say something like this. Just call and let me know so we can set up a time when you want to come over. So if I have said earlier on, that everyone is welcome in my house at any point, and then at another time, in my same letter, I say, just call and let me know when you want to come over. Do we isolate them? No. Do we make them contradicting? No. We bring them together, and we make them complementary. Now, the same thing is with sanctification. Is Paul now, in Romans chapter 7, going to throw away everything he just talked about in Romans chapter 6 about you being free from the power of the law and sin and now alive to the Spirit? Is he going to throw that away and now talk about him living literally as an unspiritual person, a slave to sin? Of course not. He's not going to do that. What he's going to do is give you a metaphor or an example, and I'm going to give you the big word here in a little bit of what we call that. He's going to give you a way of telling the story biographical, but as a reflection. He's going to reflect on it and kind of put himself in that position in the present, but it's really what he was going through in the past. But here's the deal. When he was in the past, he didn't know about what he was experiencing, what he knows now. He's looking at it and reflecting on it in the present because he now knows what was happening in the past. It would be as if you were telling a story about a past relationship and you would be saying things like, I am just so easily duped into falling for these kinds of things. Now at the time, if you were acknowledging you're so easily duped, you never would have went into that situation or into that relationship. You're telling the story now with the information you've learned afterward, and you're inserting your feelings and emotions that you can discern now in the present with your wisdom with what actually happened in the past. Does everybody get that? So it's not confusing in any way. Let's go. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? So he asked the question, I know you know the law. So at this point, his audience is primarily Jewish, and that's where he's going to be for a little while now, into, into uh, chapter 8, 9, and 10, even at the end of 11. Gentiles will be a subcategory of his discussion, but he's really trying to explain to the person who want, wanted to be the best Jew they could be, like Paul, he's explaining to them that that way of law without faith, works without faith, would have never have made you happy. You would have never, not just happy, never would have saved you, and it will lead to uh, unhappiness, frustration, etc. So he's like, I'm talking to you guys who know the law. Now, those of you who know the law, you know that the law only has authority as long as a person is alive. So once you're dead, you're not under the law of Moses anymore and all of these various things. And one of the examples he's going to give is verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So he just gives a real simple example. If you are married and the person, the spouse, dies, 
your spouse dies, you are now free to remarry. And he's going to use those kind of illustrations in other places as well when he talks about the law being a tutor, you graduate from the tutor, as well as saying you have died to the law, and now that you live because Christ was the one that died to enact an inheritance, okay? So these examples that Paul uses of death freeing you from the law is found other places like Galatians. And so right here he just uses the example of marriage. When you are married, by the law, you can't go out and get another wife. But if that spouse should die, you can get another spouse or a husband, another wife, a wife, another husband. Does everybody get that example? Now watch how he makes it applicable then to us. Verse 3, so then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Thank you. You're doing much better today, Oscar. So you're an adulteress if you have sex with another man while that, you know, let's just keep it with um, the, the example he's giving here. If she, the wife, has sex with another man while she's still married and the husband's alive, she's an adulteress. The husband dies, she has sex with another man, she's not an adulteress. So the sex with the other man, whether that's good or evil, determines on the death or life of this husband she has, right? Does everybody get that? So dead means she's free from it. Alive, she's bound to it. That is such a simple example. And that goes back to the Judaizers. Are we dead to the law and now alive to Christ, free from it, or are we alive and attached to the law? Are we under it? That's his whole point here. So you can always, in the book of Romans, keep giving it back to the Judaizer, the false Hebrew roots movement. And you guys might have saw that I debated one the previous week. What a fool, right? Nothing really to say, only airing his opinions. Uh, I made sure, I actually brought back my computer because I had such a terrible time with it and it's been acting very bad. The only Mac computer I've ever bought that wasn't good. They let me upgrade, do a, a trade-in at value and get an upgrade. So I got this huge Mac, now it's amazing. I cannot wait to debate one of those guys because all my dictionaries will be ready. I was stalling so much at the beginning because my dictionary was not coming up and then it was freezing. And you know that feeling when you're trying to find something, it's like, oh my gosh, give it to me. But we finally got past that and he just got rocked and rocked and rock and he didn't want to change because he doesn't want to humble himself right but but the idea is Romans is so clear that the law has been fulfilled that Paul starts off this example by saying if the husband is alive she's bound to that law if the husband is dead she's free to remarry now let's go to verse 4 so my brothers and sisters you also died to the law Could it be any clearer? No, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So let's just crush the Judaizers, the Hebrew roots movement right there. It's over. His point now is totally made. There is no way around it. Abraham didn't even get saved by the law he was talking about. 
In Romans 4 and 5, the law came after to have good works to confirm that his faith was true and active, okay? So we're not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works. That's why when I held the Hebrew roots guy to the passage in Ephesians, he had nothing to say because it's so clear. Salvation through grace through faith comes first, not of ourselves, not of works so that we can't boast, and then all of these good works come afterward. It's so clear there. And then James is not going to contradict Paul because we know that they had interaction together in the book of Acts, Council of Jerusalem. So whatever James is talking about, James is not going to go against the principle of faith and Abraham being the friend of God, which he even brings up. What he is simply doing is coming against antinomianism, those who are against the law, okay? Nomos, I believe, is the Greek word for law, correct? And so it's anti-law. And he's saying, you can't say you're loving God and not keeping his commands. First John deals with that same thing. Now, what do people always do? They insert law and commands of the New Testament to the 613. They assume of the Old Testament, every time they see law and commands mentioned somewhere in the New Testament, that that now means we're importing all 613 in. And we teach them the law and the commands are the laws of Christ, the commands of Christ, the new covenant, which he is clear to say in, in John that he's going to further teach them by the Holy Spirit, okay? And so it's real simple to show them, any Judaizer, Hebrew Roots movement, that it can't be the 613 laws. You want to know why? Because no one is keeping a great majority of them since the temple's destruction, it is impossible. Not even the Jews are temple Jews. They've had to literally recreate their religion. After 70 AD, there has been no Judaism that represents the Judaism of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Moses, etc. There's no sacrifices. There's no priesthood. There's none of that. They're all trying to do just a little here, a little there, what we can get away with, what their rabbis say. And what, what totally blows my mind is that now Christians take on Judaism and then start following the ways of rabbis. And it's like, hold on, dude, these guys are Oompa Loompas trying to catch up. You know, why are you now coming under their authority? Like, okay, this is how you now celebrate these feasts without a temple and without a priesthood. I don't care how some rabbi tried to piece together the feast, and so now you as a Christian Judaizer are trying to do that. It's all nonsense. The Jew can't even keep the feasts anymore. How can you? The feasts were attached to the temple and the priests and all of those things they had to do. It wasn't relevant just because you went somewhere off and did it. It was relevant because the priests were doing something at an actual temple with the Shekinah glory there. You don't have any of that now. Now you're just playing make-believe. It's like basically they're doing one thing out of the hundred things that God commanded to do on these feasts, and they go, we keep the feasts. Like, no, you're just playing make-believe. You know, it's like looking at those who LARP you know, who uh, get dressed up and pretend to act out their video games or these different sagas like Lord of the Rings, they're LARPing and it, they're, they're just make-believing. Yeah, like you look like something like the picture of Lord of the Rings. You have one thing right. You have a beard like Gimli has a beard. Okay, maybe you even have a sword. But all the other hundred things that make Lord of the Rings what it is, you don't have. And so you're just playing make-believe with that one, Okay. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's the illustration. Illustrations in the Bible should make sense. You know, like the author should make a point to you. 
That was the point. We'll get to sanctification in a moment, but let's follow Paul's train of thought. Verse 5, for when we were in the realm of the what? The flesh. Here comes sanctification now. You guys ready for the discussion on sanctification? Okay, and I want you to to, uh, go to the top and go to the tab that I have here for the assemblies of God because we love the assemblies of God. But I am not making this up. I don't want any professor, any leader in SUM, because this is an SUM chapel that gets labeled as such, getting mad with me because I still follow the statement of sanctification that they had when they first founded their movement. Okay? I'm not upset with you if you believe otherwise. As Stanley Horton brought about those changes in 1961, I used to have a Facebook relationship with Stanley Horton. Godly, godly man. Uh, I mean, if this is the only thing Stanley Horton had wrong, he was an amazing man. I'm sure I have more wrong than this, okay? Because we're all not perfect in our theology. And I want to be humble as I grow and get older. But I'm just saying, like, I wish I could have gone toe-to-toe lovingly with with Stanley Horton, you know? Just like LeBron wishes he could go one-on one with, with Jordan, you know, just out of respect and love to have fun. But here's the thing. We're not making something up, even in our own circle. Look at what it says. The original language of sanct- on sanctification in the fundamental truths, that's the 16 fundamental truths of the Assemblies of God, was a compromise between Wesleyan and non-Wesleyan members, which allowed the two doctrines to exist. I wish they still had that. I'm not saying it has to be all the way, Wesley. It's okay if you don't agree with it. But make some room in there for the Pentecostal holiness movement where we came from, boys and girls. It says here, which allowed the two doctrines to coexist. Under the heading, entire sanctification, the goal for all believers. It read, I didn't put this in here. I wasn't even alive here. You all understand this? Sometimes I feel like people want to put us in a category, like we're making up something new, we're changing the game. No, we're just holding true to these things right here, okay? This is how it read. Entire sanctification is the will of God for all believers and should be earnestly pursued by walking in obedience to God's word, okay? And so right here, there was a difference between the the instantaneous guys like us who believe it happens at the finished work of Christ when you're saved. There was the Wesleys who believed it happened after salvation. It was sanctification. Then you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and those two, my view of instantaneous and then those who would believe in the second step of sanctification after you were saved, we both agree that it's entire and it's for all believers. So you're not supposed to be walking around going, I'll one day, one day, one day be entirely sanctified. No, even today on the Church of God application, they ask you, when were you saved? You know, you, just, you give them your date. When were you sanctified? You give them your date. I am now perfect in Christ. When were you filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues? You give them your date. That's what Church of God, in, uh, not, not in Christ, but Church of God, a brother uh, told me. And so it's wonderful to know that some denominations still hold to that. We would just answer the question very simply. When were you saved? You know, November 5th, 1995. When were you sanctified? November 5th, 1995. Uh, then for me, when were you filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues? November 5th, 1995. I got saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost from the kitchen to the uh, living room couch. For some of you, it might be salvation and sanctification on, in, on one day and then baptism of the Holy Spirit on another day. You can go through and read all of this, and I'm not trying to say because they said it, that means it's right. I'm just having a talk with us in the Assemblies of God. Why is it our students in classes, and I know sometimes people uh, listen to our chapels from other places, why are you guys giving us a hard time? 
If you want to have a debate about it, invite me to the class or one of our leaders. Give them equal time, professor, and let's enjoy the discussion. But please don't act like we're saying something out of the realm of what you actually believed and or made room for others to believe. So it should be very commonplace in the assemblies of God or Pentecostal movements for there to be people walking around going, I believe in entire sanctification. That shouldn't be the equivalent of somebody walking around with a tin hat saying 9-11 was an inside job. That shouldn't be the equivalent of you being looked at like you're some oompa loompa. It should be like, praise God, I'm glad you believe that. How has Christ impacted your life since believing that? And that's going to be my whole doctoral dissertation is how does discipleship really work when people believe they are who God said they are and they can do what he said he can do? How do they do on average walking away from sins like pornography, the sins of adultery? How do we compare to others and other stats that we get in the world today? Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's go back to the notes. We are not in the realm of the flesh. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. How much more clear could Paul be there? He knocks down both. He knocks down Jewish roots movement, and he knocks down living in your flesh as a Christian. Now, once again, are we here to make sanctification a dividing issue, a big issue? No, but when it comes up, we're going to share our opinion on it. And then our church, obviously, we're going to teach it and disciple in it, right? But here he's very clear. The law in the written code is now dead to us. We're alive in the spirit. But notice what he says here in verse 5. You were once in the realm of the flesh, and the sinful passions were aroused by the law. So notice everything is in the past tense now. It's past tense. You were, or we, excuse me, even better, we were. Do you see that there, Lawrence? We were. We were in the realm of the flesh. The sinful passions aroused, past tense, by the law, were, past tense, at work in us, so that we bore, past tense, fruit for death. But now, somebody say now. now. Do you notice that the time frame matters here? He's being very clear. That was how we lived in the past in the flesh, having the sinful passions aroused by the law. But now, dying to what once bound us, so the dying is now present, we have been, past tense, released from the law. So now I am carrying the death to the law presently with me. I am presently dying to that demand or the fleshly desire. And the reason why I can do that is because I'm released from the power of the law to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Okay, sanctification here. So now when we get to the next verses, and please scroll up to verse 7, when he starts going into the story where he talks about how the law provoked his sinful desires, is he looking at that in the present? No, he's telling the story as a biographical reconstruction. He's reconstructing this biography about himself with the present mind he now has, but in actuality, he's already been released from it. He's in the present 
tense, free from the law and the arousal of his fleshly passions because he's counting those as dead daily. And he's alive right now to the Spirit. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, he's going to keep going on with that thought. But let's read through it. Let's understand it. I'm not going to stop and preach on it until I get through the whole portion so you can hear it all. It's going to take me just a few minutes to read verses 7 all the way down to verse 25. Now, if you can just scroll up a little bit, please. You see I have a paper here by one of our brightest, best and brightest, Juan Garcia, on this position. And there's a website that has graphs and talks about the Greek and all of these wonderful things. And remember, grammar and all that will always support our points. But once we have a well-translated Bible, we can make the points within the context. So those of you who like to become a little bit more familiar with grammar and understanding things in the Greek, look at the paper, which is a great summary of everything, or the website, which goes into depth with graphs, okay? Let's start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now let me just pause here before I go into all the rest. This is just a little simple thing about the law. Remember the Gentiles have the law, but don't have it written uh, on, on the written code like Moses and them. They have it written in their heart. So notice the example he uses, he uses of the moral law. But the moral law is just the beginning of all the other kinds of laws that go into the written code as he refers to it. Okay, so he He's going to say, I'm like basically growing up as a Jew, and I kind of knew stuff was wrong and right, but I didn't know how wrong it was until I actually read it. So the Gentile doesn't get to read it, but they still have that sense in their conscience that things are right or wrong, and by that they'll be judged. Okay, does everybody remember that? Just don't want us to get lost there. But now let's read through. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual. Now notice he, he takes it from the past tense to the present tense. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, which should simply say flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it. But it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh or sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. And I'll keep reading in chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's go back to verse 7 and get three opportunities or three options we can choose in understanding this passage. Number one, we can think that Paul is talking about his present life. He's literally a slave to sin. There is no good in him, and he cannot stop himself from sinning. What an apostle to follow. What a great guy, you know? Uh, That's option number one. And so if that's the standard life of Paul, get ready for your life because you're going to be a slave to sin. You're not going to be able to stop yourself from sinning, and you're going to feel condemned all the time, okay, number one. Number two, on the complete opposite where we're at, and and number one is what most Calvinists believe and sometimes Baptists, uh, number two. Number two option is what we believe, that this is Paul in a biographical reconstruction simply using the present as a way to explain what he was going through in the past. He was once a slave to sin. He once tried to keep the commands without the Spirit, and it was condemnation to him and guilt. And so he was not able to control his own desires no matter how hard he tried. Then there's a third position, like most positions, there's always a middle ground. And they say, this is not the way Christian life should be, but Paul is just describing what it's like when you set your mind as a Christian on the flesh, you have no power of the Spirit, and so you live as a carnal believer. Could be convincing if the context had that. There are such things as carnal believers, and they're mentioned in other places, but this context leaves us no room. I believe it's number two. Now, let me share with you why. Paul, in verses 7 through 8, is very clear when he looks at the law and what it does to him. We know that this cannot be who he is now. Chapter 6 counterdicts all of that. Let's go back to previous chapters. What comes first, 6 or 7? 
Okay, that means you're a good mathematician. Now would Paul contradict himself in seven what he had wrote in six? Yes or no? No, you're good logicians now. Now go to chapter six and just go to verse five and then we'll go just, you know, kind of spot, pick out a couple spots here to just show you this is not his life. Romans chapter 6, verse 5. For with, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. <laughs> Just keep Romans 7s right up there too, please. Put it in the other one. Is there any possibility he's going to be a slave to sin? In Romans 7 in the present, of course not. Go to Romans chapter 7, and I'm just going to tell you what to click on. Go right up here to that, that, yeah, just click on it. There you go. Now, go back down to verse 7. Look at what it says. He says, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you should not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Is that him right now? A man full of coveting? No, because he has died to the law. He has been set free from it. Now go uh, up, scroll up a little bit, please, down further. Now he says, verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the law, keep going up, uh, through the commandment, put me to death so that then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And so it put him to death even though it was good. In Romans chapter 6, and just click over please to Romans chapter 6, uh, there in verse 6, is he alive to sin or dead to sin? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be what? Done away with that we should no longer be what? Slaves to sin. Now let's just go down a few more. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves what to sin? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now go back to 7. As we scroll down, look at verse 14 of chapter 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Uh, what happened, Paul, between 6 and 7? Did you go to uh, pornography.com and get addicted to something? No, come on. Nothing has changed in him. Now, some might use that example I just gave and go, well, what if he did? Wouldn't that now describe his life? No, it wouldn't. Because even as a Christian who is carnal in sin still has Christ in them having the power over that sin. They don't have to wait for another thing. They just need to put faith in the thing that has already happened. So it's like Paul said in Galatians, you're already free, but you're trying to do stuff by the law to get more free, but really you're binding yourself up. Who bewitched you? Go back to the beginning and you'll be free for the, for the Spirit of God. Give us freedom for the freedom's sake, you know? is for the spirit of the, uh, let's go to uh, Galatians, go to number uh, the third one, NIV right there. I want to get that. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians chapter what? Five, verse one. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I tell you, uh, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. 613, baby. So going back to Romans 7, There is no way in God's green earth that Paul is now presently a slave to sin and unspiritual. How is that? Come on, somebody. Isn't it just nonsense? Chapter 6 and chapter 8 are the buns of chapter 7's description of what's going on. 6, he's free. He's a slave to righteousness. He's dead to sin. He's freed from the law. And in chapter 8, he's in that same place, and he's teaching us how to set our mind on the Spirit, not on the flesh. So as we continue down uh, Romans chapter 7, we get to this what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I keep going and doing. In verse, uh, say, 20. Look at 20 as a summary. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Now, somebody might say, well, Pastor, Romans 3 says no one seeks God. No one does good. So how would an unregenerate man want to do good and then find the frustration? So this is the argument of the Calvinists. If you're a non-Christian, you'll have no desire to do good by the law because that's only something that God initiates. And so he hasn't initiated good in you as a lost person. Therefore, this is only describing the frustration of a Christian who actually now wants to do good but can't. What do we say back to them? Number one, in that same context, Paul is saying he's unspiritual. That cannot be true. Uh, you cannot be spiritual and unspiritual at the same time. One is either true or the other one is not true. It's, it's, a, it's either you are spiritual or you are unspiritual. So number one, we know already this is talking um, about someone who is unspiritual, describing unspiritual na- uh, an, an unspiritual nature. So then they say, well, how can you in an unspiritual nature des- desire to do something good? All the time. Here's one quick example. You show them, as we've read before, uh, let's go up to number four on, on there, please. Go to Matthew chapter seven in our Matthew series. What does it say that evil people can do when it comes to giving your children food? Now, I can show you in Romans, and I'll do that in just a moment, but I'm just building a principle here because we get to go through the wider scriptures. Notice this in Romans chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus said, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So what does that teach us? That evil people can do good things. But what is the good things that they cannot do according to Romans chapter 3? Fulfill the law and rightly be saved by it. They can't do it good enough. But can they have a good desire, a desire to want to live for God all the time? 
Look at all the religions. Aren't they wanting to live for God? Aren't they wanting to do something good? I mean, are we honestly ascribing to every single false believer nefarious motives? Like the Muslim really knows that I I hate the God of Israel and I don't want good in this situation. No, I believe they're deceived. I believe that they are pushing down the knowledge of the true God. Trust me, I'm not getting away from Romans chapter 1. But they are actually deceived into thinking that they are doing something good. And so that's why we have to get them out of deception. And so there's a lot of religious people that desire the good in the sense of I want to serve God or I want to serve the creator and those things. And so they are contradicted within the teachings of the Bible. But let me contradict them within the very scriptures that we're looking at. Here in Romans chapter 7, Paul is an unspiritual person, and he said he desired to do good. It's them arguing in a circle that says he must be a spiritual person, a Christian, to desire to do good and not do it because there's no way you could ever desire to do good unless you're a Christian. And then we point to this passage and say, you you can't read it that way because you can't desire good unless you're a Christian. And we go, you're arguing in a circle. You can't desire to do good unless you're a Christian because it says here you can't desire to do good unless you're a Christian. No, listen to what it says. He is unspiritual. He is unspiritual, and yet being unspiritual, he desires to do good. But the problem is he can't do it good enough because what does he find out? That what was intended to bring life in verse 10 actually brings death. Now let me ask you something. When the gospel is preached, does it bring life or does it bring death? So this is not him refusing the gospel. This is not him saying, well, the gospel was meant to bring life, but for me it brings death because I realize how wretched I am. No, it's literally talking about the law. There's no reason to allegorize it. He's a Jew. Just, I mean, just look at the context. He's a Jew that kind of knew right and wrong in his conscience, but it wasn't until he read it in the black and white of the scrolls as a young Jewish boy on the rabbis that he realized how bad he really was. And so it was meant to try to help him, but all it was doing was bringing life. What does Romans 116 say that the gospel brings power to salvation. This man is not saved. He doesn't know the gospel. All he knows, Des, is that the commands of Moses make him feel worse. Okay. Now, what I've heard even people like Jimmy Swagger do, which would be an example of a Pentecostal being pimped by a bad theology of Calvinism and adopting this, is he tried to say, well, you know, this is all internally, and so it's just describing things in ways that aren't maybe exact, but it's how we feel. And haven't you felt before as a Christian? Haven't you felt like you wanted to do the right thing? But then you just couldn't. You gave into the temptation. And then after you gave into it, you felt so guilty and said, I'll never do that again. And then you did it again. That's what's going on here. Now, if that was the, what, the, the thing that Paul was trying to describe here, Paul is the worst communicator in the entire world. 
because that is not at all the language he should be, uh, he used because he shouldn't be using any of that. He should say, apart from the gospel, sin was dead. And then when the gospel came and I became saved, the gospel brought me condemnation and the gospel made me feel so bad and the Holy Spirit left me when I tried to break these habits and I felt alone because I lacked faith. That's what it really should say if it's trying to describe that scenario, but it can't and it won't because the gospel always brings life. The gospel always works. And if we don't work the gospel and it doesn't work, that's our fault. It's not that we're the slave to our sin. It's that uh, we have chosen as Christians to return to an old slave master because as we read in Galatians, we were set free and then we go back. And you can go back. And that's why in Romans chapter 11, he's talking to the Jews going, you guys have got cut off because of unbelief. The Gentiles have come in because of faith. But listen, Gentiles, if you stop living by faith, you'll fall just like they fell. How, and they get cut off. How did the Jewish people get cut off? Did they in this context of the Second Temple Judaism, did they become idolaters again? Did they be, practice all the per- perversion of the world? No. How did they get cut off? By trying to achieve salvation by works. So in, in other words, it's saying, Gentile, if you try to start living by the law just like the Jews and live in unbelief, you'll get cut off too. Very interesting, isn't it? Because it's actually the same subject he has in Galatians, which is you stand by faith. You don't do it by the works of the law. The Jewish people got cut off from um, the, the, the vine here because they stopped walking in faith. They thought if they did all of these laws, it was good for them. But really, when people looked at it the right way, like Paul's saying here, it really just brings death and shows you how much you need Jesus, how much you need the gospel. That's why, let's go to the end. What does he say? Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Now, is that really who he is right now? Come on, he addresses all the letters as saints and to the saints and all this. Is he really a wretched man? Can a wretched man be an elder, an apostle, be trusted over people? No, he's saying it in the same way I sing Amazing Grace, who saved a wretch like me. When I am singing Amazing Grace, you know, if we would sing it for Easter this week, am I literally saying I'm a wretch right now? I mean, you know the definition of what a wretch is? No, I'm a saint in Christ, but I'm saying it in the present to reconstruct what had happened in my past. When I was saved, I was a wretch. And the more I've been saved, and, and as, long, as the further I go in salvation, the more I realize how wretched I was back then. I realize how, how bad I was. And that's true. You're going to get more of an understanding of your sinfulness as God shows you his holiness. But that doesn't mean that in the present, Paul, or I am wretched. Now he says, who will rescue me from this body subject to death? Isn't that how we are going to go into chapter 8 and learn to live out entire sanctification and Christian perfection, Jared? We're going to learn that our wrestling is with the flesh. Oh, and what is the flesh? Give me that deep conspiracy of what the flesh is. Well, let me just tell you, it's your body. And it's the body that's going to die, and it's called your flesh. And that's all that it is. Well, I didn't know the flesh could be that complex. It is. Your your flesh is more complex, as I've said before, than an animal's flesh. And look at what their brains can do. 
All the emotions of sin can come through them, jealousy, rage, perversion. Now, we wouldn't call it perversion because they're not, you know, commanded to keep one, one uh, mate or whatever. But, you know, they can have sex whenever their hormones want them to have sex, etc. And so if their body and brain can cause all of that to go on in their life, how much more our complex nervous system with our brains, past memories, can, re- can reintroduce to us sin and temptation all the time? Right? But we're not a slave to it anymore because listen to what he says. So then I myself in my, oh, let's go, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the crescendo. I am delivered. So even if the person wants to take the middle option and say, he's telling us of the carnal life, you're not supposed to live in the carnal life. But throw away those other ones and take it for what it is. It's a past explanation of how he came to Christ. Now look at the theological conclusion. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, as it should simply say there, and just highlight, just take the mouse and highlight it right there. You're going to see sarks. I'm not making it up. There are no two words right there. There's only one word where it says sinful nature. No, no, no. Don't don't highlight it in that way. Just put, put your mouse over it. There we go. Go over to sinful. Go over to sinful. I don't know why it's doing that. Uh, go over a little bit. Sometimes it just picks an article there. Do this. Do uh, two buttons. Do two buttons right there. It will come up. My sinful nature. Okay, so it's giving us the article, but you see the word right there, sarks. What does that word mean? Flesh. That's all it should say there is flesh. Thank you. So look what he says. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. Now, is that current? Absolutely. Go back to Romans chapter 6. What does he say in verse 14? Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we go on? Uh, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that when... When you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to what? You are slaves to what? Righteousness. Now go back to chapter 7. Verse 25, in my mind, this is the Christian life now, we get out of that defeated state, now we're in a victorious state. In my mind, I am a slave to God's law and of righteousness, but my flesh, until it dies, is a slave to sin. But am I rescued from it being my slave master? Yes, and scroll to chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit, a new law is introduced here. Not the law that brings death, not the law of sin and death, but the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the what? The flesh, God did by sending his own son, the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the what? In the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. 
So now we are solically, spiritually separated from the slave master of our own flesh with all of those passions and desires that were leading us to hell because Adam and Eve sinned, we're set free from it and alive, born again, regenerated in the spirit. But has our flesh been done away with? No, it's still here with us. But have we been rescued from its desires and temptations? Yes. Now what is he going to do in verse 5? Let's go a little bit ahead here. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So now remember, there's only one you. There's only one you, and you as the soul that's been born again can now put your mind on the Holy Spirit, like in Galatians, and all these things of the Spirit, or you can put your mind on your brain, your flesh, your emotions, your feelings. It's your decision because as a Christian, you've been set free from the slave master of the flesh, where everybody else by default is already got their mind on the flesh. And whenever they hear the law, they try to do it like a New Year's resolution, but it doesn't work. We've been freed from that by not by works, but by grace. And so now we are to continue in the spirit and count the flesh as dead and the law of the flesh of sin and death that tried to give us the commands that we couldn't follow. We are now dead to that, but alive to Christ. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. Wasn't everything we read before about the things I want to do that I don't do? Isn't that all the realm of the flesh? Yes. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And notice how when Juan concluded our debate with that Judaizer, that he talked about the man never mentioned the spirit. Why? Because legalism never tends towards the spiritual life. It's always towards what you do in the flesh. The spiritual life is centered around the Holy Spirit. We do good works in the flesh but it's centered around the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of Christ lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Now here it is, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, how many of you have Christ in you? Amen. Amen. Then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And here we get to the resurrection day coming for us because of Jesus' resurrection. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So let's just summarize it very simply, very simply. When you are born, you are born under the law of sin and death. You don't know much about that. But as you get older, maybe even raised in church like they did back in the synagogue days, when you hear those commands, they'll actually condemn you and show you how bad you are at them. But the gospel comes, hopefully to us, as you know, as we're, it comes to our children and came to us at some point because we're saved. When the gospel comes, the gospel says, don't try more to do more. Just believe in Christ's death and you'll be freed from this bondage of the law. And those of us who believed, we then became new creatures in Christ. And our spirits became alive. And now we desire the things of God and we mind the things of God. But if we put our mind back on the flesh, 
we will live in sin and defeat and lower than we should. It's not the Roman 7's life. It will just be a carnal Christian life. The Roman 7 life is a non-Christian life under condemnation. A carnal life is now in Romans chapter 8, one that goes back to the things you've been set free from. And so then you won't please God. And eventually, like we'll learn in Romans, you can get cut off from God. Like a lot of good Jews got cut off from God. Because when the sin was happening, they tried to fix it in their flesh by keeping and doing more laws. That's why when I notice a lot of times when people are struggling, they try to be more legalistic or put on an air that they're trying harder because they're losing the battle. And instead of just humbly submitting to God, they're trying to fix it this way. They'll be coming to church more. They'll be doing this more. And they're not resting in Christ. Like I remember my girlfriend when we were dating, she was struggling with her own perversion and all those things. She used to be so much more strict than me in all of these ways. And maybe she was trying to guard herself, I know. But I feel like she was doing that like almost like a way to save herself. And then when she finally left us and wasn't an intern anymore and went back home, that's when she cheated on me because she didn't have all these rules and all of these things to protect her, you know. When she was kind of an intern, she went all extreme to try to protect herself because she wasn't realizing that the victory was already won. That's why when we teach people entire sanctification, it's not going to lead to uh, uh, living in sin. It's going to lead to sinlessness because they're going to want to see that they sin less. They're, they're going to not want to sin. They're going to say, I don't want any sin because I know what Christ has purchased for me. It's the one who says, well, I don't know if I'm really ever going to be out of sin that gets caught in that rat race and doesn't see being sinless or without sin as even a goal or a desire. My goal is sinlessness, though I'm not sinless, but I do sin less. But my goal is always, I would love to live without sin. I would love to say, like, from this day forward, I never sinned again. I can say that about certain sins. Aren't you glad that I've never sold drugs again? Amen. Well, I'm sinless in that area. Aren't you glad that I never got into a fight that was provoked by my wicked intentions? Aren't you glad about that? You know? Aren't you glad that I haven't stolen? Amen. I mean, if, if those sins can fall along the wayside, what... what other sin has more power than that. No, no, no sin has power of us anymore. We're dead to all of it in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we'll come back and we'll get into Romans chapter 8 and tie it all together and see the beauty of his message that frees us from the laws of legalism and all of that, gives us a great way to live by the Spirit and holy sanctification and, and, and holiness and to live victorious lives. Amen. And then we'll get into some of those tougher Calvinism passages, which, like I said, like the judge not passages, they just want to point you right towards and forget everything that you've learned before that. Well, when we get to those points, we're going to simply know uh, and learn that it has nothing to do with Calvinism. All it has to do with is how God's plan is working out through the nations, how God's plan is working through his people, because God does know everything. It's not like any of us are a surprise to him. But we do have free will. We do have choice. Grace is resistible. It's your choice. But God is beckoning us and calling us to himself. Amen? So let's pray. Father, I thank you today. From your word, you have shown us how to live free from the law of sin and death and to live lives of the Spirit and to be free in the Spirit and to uh, enjoy this beautiful life that you've given us, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And so today, Lord, if there's anyone here that's setting their mind on the flesh, uh, they are living as a carnal Christian and they are uh, finding themselves battling where you have already won, I pray, Lord, they'll repent They'll turn from these carnal things and put their mind on you because the mind that is on you is the mind that will be free. 
It's not trying harder, doing more. It's resting and focusing in on you and what you've done for us. So free anyone here that is bound to sin and show them the new life, the life of the Spirit. There's no condemnation for them, God. They are free from their flesh. And we who are free and don't see in our hearts a bondage right now, keep us free. Like Paul said, Lord, let us not be brought back into bondage. So though uh, it's... um, thing that sometimes people fall into, it's not the default position to always be in bondage to some kind of sin and to always need some kind of soul healing. Lord, let us be reminded that the standard place is freedom. The default place is freedom. And just like when uh, they fix computers sometimes, they restore the hard drive and set it back to factory settings, Lord. If there's anyone here that needs to be uh, set on fire and reset back to factory settings, pure, and to know who they are in Christ, do that today, Lord. Not only in these moments we have together, but throughout their private time of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.